Welcome to Community Hope Podcast. We pray that the Word of Christ would dwell in you richly as you listen and that you would be encouraged in Christ. Will you pray with me? Lord, I would just ask that you would um, open our hearts to your Word and all that you would have for us. Thank you for, uh, for technology uh, and and we would pray that you could use the words of my mouth and the thoughts of all our hearts, that you would uh, speak to our souls to be still and to find rest, and, and you'd give us more of you, Lord, thoughts that come from you and uh, the nourishment that only comes from your word. Jesus, we ask this in your name. Amen? So look, communion. That's the first uh, point I want to talk about is communion. And it begins in Luke 22. When the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. And you know, when I, I read this, and maybe you read it, it's, he says earnestly desired. But you want to know what the actual Greek says? With desire, I desire. It's, it's the same word, the same root word. With desire, I desire. Now, some of this is in, in that culture when you said things twice or three times, you did it for emphasis. So God is holy, 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 right? And sometimes Jesus would say, idu, idu, right? He'd go, look, look, trying to say, you do it with your kids, right? How many times do you repeat the same thing over and over because you want them to listen, right? And so it could be that, but I think it's also like, I am really passionate about this. The word, the Greek word is actually, the root of it is where we get the word passion. Sometimes in the Bible, this word is translated lust. It all depends on whether it could be a good or a bad word. It all depends on how it's used. So with desire, I desire and I had to ask myself, why did he desire to eat the Passover meal with them so much? Like, what was the big motivation? Was it just he liked to hang out with his guys, you know? Was it that I'm an observant Jewish guy and I want to have the Passover? Or was there more to it? And I think there was a lot more to it because he is the Lamb of God who takes away ooh, the sins of the world. And if you, if you know anything about the Passover... Earlier in Jesus' ministry, do you remember when he went up on the temple? Do you remember when he went up to, I'm sorry, when he went up the mountain? And he's there, and his, his face shone, and his clothes lit up like lightning. Do you remember that? Remember, he, it's the Mount of Transfiguration? Well, only in Luke, if I, the slide was up here, you would see it, but only in Luke do you have these words. He's up there with Moses and Elijah, and it says, your translation will say he's discussing his departure, but the word for departure is exodus. He's discussing his exodus. And what happened at the first Passover? What happened the day after the first Passover? The exodus. The first Passover was the last plague that had the, the Pharaoh say, go ahead, leave, get out. And here you have this meal that they've been doing over and over and over again. And Jesus says, I, 
with desire, I desired to eat this meal with you because I want to tell you it's about me. I want to tell you that this meal is all about me. And it wasn't just this earthly freedom from Pharaoh's tyranny. Jesus is saying, I am going to free you cosmically. You know the word, God so loved the world, is actually God so loved the cosmos? You know, he's like, I am going to free you cosmically. I am going to free you from sin, death, and damnation. He says, I've so desired to teach you about what the cross is and what the cross is going to do. It says, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew his hour had come at, to depart out of the world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. John points out that some of this desire was that Jesus knew that the barrier between him and us would be gone. I think some of this with desire, I desire is, I want you. Do you remember the song? I think it was by Cheap Trick, I Want You to Want Me. Come on, old people in here. Right? Billy's going to break it. Billy could do the drums probably right now to it. I want you to want me. A country singer redid it too. And I think it's a universal desire in us. We want to be wanted. We want somebody to go, I love you. You're mine. I want you. And I think many times we sin because we're just looking for that to be wanted in all the wrong places. And Jesus is saying from the cross and Jesus is saying in this Passover meal, I want you. I want you. I was listening to a podcast this week about a gal who, oh, just grew up in very difficult circumstances. She said, I was abused in every way. And she went from foster care home to guardianship to foster care home. And, and even late in her high school year, she got a little bit of time with her mom till her mom left her again and got addicted again. And just this really difficult home situation. And in, in, in her life, in one of the families, her social worker called and begged them to take her in. And it was a Christian home. And she said she saw and felt things there she had never felt before. She said, I've learned how to be healed and allow myself to be loved unconditionally by the one true king. I'm telling my story to encourage hurting and broken people to recognize the healing power that comes through a relationship with Christ. And she's a 19-year-old sophomore. She's in college right now at a Christian university. And she said, I grew up battling feelings of inadequacy and shame throughout my many years in foster care and guardianship placement. And she said she went home because her last foster family said, listen, anytime." You know, because when you age out of the system, foster kids don't have a home. They said, this is your home. Come back any time. And she comes back and says, you know, I just struggle because I got this big hyphenated name and some of the name I don't like at all. And, and her family said, why don't you just call yourself Davis? She says, well, that's not my legal name. And behind the scenes, that family, the whole family, children, parents and all, have been talking about adopting her. And they said, would you like it to be? And they said, we've got all the paperwork. All you'd have to do is sign it. And she broke down and she started crying. 
And I think the tears are this. You want me? You really want me? There's a sense inside of all of us that if we can get this, I desire with desire you. The meal is to point out that the cross says, I will buy you. I will buy you with the price of my blood. I want you. It's a beautiful picture. And then he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And you know what's kind of interesting? I don't know if you've ever seen this in Deuteronomy. It says, You shall not eat leavened bread. Right? Remember Passover? They had to get rid of all the sin, and the yeast stood for sin. So they had to have no sin. They cleaned their houses, do everything. No leaven in their house. They had to eat flatbread, like crackers, matzah. So you should not eat leavened bread for seven days. You shall eat unleavened bread with it. And look what it's called. The bread of affliction. For you came out of the land of Egypt in a hurry. And so you will remember the day when you came out of the land of Egypt all the days of your life. So Jesus holds up a piece of bread and says, this is my body, the bread of affliction. When you come to the table, do you ever think, Jesus, your body was afflicted so my body wouldn't have to be afflicted? Right? Your body was afflicted. The worst affliction ever. When you cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's like you were in hell so I wouldn't have to be. He says, this is my body, the bread of affliction. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, he took the cup. And after he had eaten, saying, this cup is poured out for you. It's the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is on the table. So here's Jesus pouring himself out. And at the same time, in his little cadre of believers, one of them is a betrayer. I I thought of what C.S. Lewis said. He said, to love is to be vulnerable. Here Jesus is loving. He's making himself fully vulnerable. Lewis says, love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. Do you see what he's saying? Here's Jesus making himself vulnerable to us. And when you and I, when we make ourselves vulnerable, we risk, don't we? We risk being betrayed and taken advantage of. Lewis goes on and he says, Christ did not teach and suffer that we might become, even in our natural loves, more careful of our own happiness. He's like, Christ didn't tell us, you Christians, be careful and and your goal is to be happy all the time. He said, no, if a man is not uncalculating towards his earthly beloveds whom he has seen, He is none the more likely to be so towards whom he has not seen. So he's like, if you walk around here with this closed heart, like, I'm not going to give myself to you because I've been burned before. 
He goes, you're going to be similar towards God. You're going to have a, a heart that holds back from God. He shall, says, we shall draw near to God, not by trying to avoid the suffering inherent in all loves, but by accepting them and offering them to him, throwing away all defensive armor. If our heart needs to be broken, and if he chooses this as the way in which it should break, so be it. Is that? He's like, my, my people, Christians, we live our lives in the world and we're vulnerable and we, like Jesus, get betrayed. And if we get betrayed, so be it. We're, we're betrayed in the name of love. And, and you know what else I think why Jesus um, at Passover explained about the Lamb of God was that lambs are fluffy, cute creatures. Did you ever see a baby lamb? It's adorable, isn't it? Okay, this is a picture of me coming back from vacation at Bryce and JoJo's house when I picked my dog up. Maybe I love this puppy. Maybe. And um, I just couldn't help but think, if I have this little bit of love for a dog, what would it be like to say, hey, I'm going to sacrifice my dog for one person or, or for the congregation. I mean, can you imagine the kind of sacrifice that would be? And here we have God giving his only begotten son for the sins of the world. I mean, if you had an animal, how much more did it cost Jesus to give his son? And Romans would say, how much more does he actually love you? When you come to the table later and you eat uh, the bread and wine, the body and blood, think about the kind of love that God has for you. Well, the next thing Jesus rolls into in these uh, upper room discourse is community. And he talks about how the church, how his followers, it's not just about you being forgiven, but we are building a community, a different kind of community. It's, it's unique. And it starts with what's so normal, a dispute rose among them as to which of them is to be regarded as the greatest. Don't you love this? This is like the, the night before he's about to die and his disciples are like, Billy, I think I'm going to be better than you in heaven, right? And Billy's like, oh no, I'm going to be better than you. That guy may be better, but we're down here and I'm going to be, one, you know, like, and they're like arguing about that. And Jesus says to them, oh, guys, you know, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. And those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become the youngest and the leaders as one who serves. For who is the greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. You know, when I, I read this, we don't really use the word benefactor too much, do we? But they had a culture and a society actually kind of similar to ours. I don't know if you've ever been this way, if you've noticed it. Um, it's easy to want to spend time with, to get in good graces with the people who have more than you, right? I know that when... Uh, when when people are popular, 
they have all kinds of people trying to get connected to them, right? Because somehow they, if they get close to popularity, they feel kind of special. Well, back in that day, if you had money, you gave it to the people below you. And then they owed you. They might owe you everything. They owe you favors. They owe you honor. They owe you your life. It's how people rose up in power. They would be benefactors and give to the people below them. And Jesus says, in the church, you're not to have that kind of culture. You're not to, to be like, oh, I'm going to be friends with this person because they're good looking or this person because they have money or this person because they can speak well or they have good friends. You're like, like, no, that's not my church. That's not how my church is supposed to be. My church is an upside-down culture. Yeah, Henry Nouwen, it's kind of interesting. He went from being a Harvard professor at Harvard Divinity School to taking care of one handicapped guy in a community called Laars Daybreak. It's the ark. And look what he says about the way of Christianity. He says, all of my life I've been told that happiness is found by moving up. More education will open more opportunities. More money will make giving more effective. And bigger houses will help my family feel more fulfilled. More friends will expand my influence. More power will enable me to do more good. Higher position at work will lead to more of the aforementioned. And while I don't think that there is anything inherently evil in having these things, more is not the way of Jesus. Upward mobility is not the way he chose. Now and writes, in a society in which upward mobility is the norm, downward mobility is not only discouraged, but is considered unwise, unhealthy, or downright stupid. Who will freely choose a low-paying job when a high-paying job is offered? Who will choose poverty when wealth is within reach? Who will choose hidden places when, when there's a place in the limelight? Who will choose to be with one person in great need when many people could be helped during the same time? Who will choose to withdraw to a place of solitude and prayer when there's so many urgent demands made from all sides? Now and continues, the way of downward mobility, the descending way of Jesus, is a way towards the poor, the suffering, the marginalized, the prisoners, the refugees, the lonely, the hungry, the dying, the tortured, the homeless, towards all who ask for compassion. What, they have to, what do they have to offer? Not success, popularity, or power, but joy and peace. This is what downward mobility has to offer. You know, in the church, Jesus just turns the world upside down. And he says, serve, love. It's okay not to be known. It's okay to be unknown. He said, let the greatest among you be as the youngest, Basically, he's saying, my community is to be a community of babies. I like a, a, a YouTube channel podcast called The Bible Project. And they have great things on Bible books. Like, check it out in your spare time. I think you really enjoy it. But I listened to one and watched one on Psalm 8 this week. And it was kind of interesting. They said, Psalm 8 is a beautiful poem about how the creator God rules the world through babbling 
babies. Look, look at this verse. Out of the mouth of babes and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemies and enemy and avengers. Can I say that's a puzzling verse? How do babies, what do babies do? They go, wah, right? Like babies, all they can do is cry. So he's like, out of the mouth, you've established strength. Out of the wailing of babies, you've established strength. To, because of your foes is still the enemy of the, of the Avengers. You know what I think he's saying? He's saying, my church is going to be a church who, in their weakness, cry out to me, and they find strength. They find refuge. My church is a bunch of babies who cry out to me. It's interesting about the Gospel of Luke. Uh, Jesus is seen praying in the Gospel of Luke more than any other Gospels. There's parables about prayer you don't find in any of the other Gospels. Like Jesus goes to these quiet places and prays. And I, Jesus knew that he cried out to the Father. And you and I have a community of weakness. A community of have-nots. A community of people who cry out to Jesus. And he's the one who comes alongside of us. And we find refuge and strength and answered prayers. And he says, but not so with you, but rather let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. And if you know the story, not in Luke's gospel, but in the other gospels, this is where Jesus picks up a towel, he puts it around his waist, and he washes his disciples' feet. Like that was a servant's job. Those feet were dirty. And he's washing their feet. And as I thought about how the community of Jesus functioned, I remember Jesus' interaction with Peter. Do you remember when Jesus goes to wash Peter's feet, what he did? Peter, he comes up to Peter to wash his feet, and he's like, Peter's like, Lord, no. No, 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 you don't wash my feet. I always love how Peter is telling Jesus what's going to happen. And Jesus says, unless I wash you, you have nothing to do with me. And then he's like, fine, wash my hands and my head too. Right, and he's no, no, just I'm just, it's just all your feet is what's needed, and I started thinking, here's Jesus, the Savior of the world. If you believe Colossians, everything was created by him, and in him all things are held together, and Peter feels safe enough to speak his mind. Do you ever been around a boss, or maybe a father or a mother that you couldn't speak what you were thinking or feeling, because they weren't safe, were they? They weren't safe people. Jesus was safe. I mean, this is kind of is amazing. He's got all this power, but he's, re- he's safe. You can share with him. Now, he doesn't shut up. Like, he, he corrects Peter, right? He's like, Peter, let me tell you. I mean, I was thinking of this section here where uh, Jesus says, Peter, you know, let me tell you, you're going to deny me. And he's like, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you'll deny me three times. But Jesus is so safe that Peter can speak his mind. And I think in the upside-down community of the church, we become safe. It's not that we don't speak the truth like Jesus did, but somehow Peter felt safe with Jesus to contradict him even, and Jesus could set him straight. But there was this beauty of being safe people. I think he wants to continue to grow us into being a safe community. 
And lastly, competency. Competency. Competency is a specific range of skill, knowledge, ability to do something successful, to being adequate or well-qualified, the condition of being capable to meet the demands and requirements. And I started thinking the church's competency is different than the world's competency. Because look what he says to Peter. Simon, Simon, that's Peter's name. Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. So wheat goes up and they would, they would let the wind blow the chaff off and then the, the heavier stuff would fall to the ground. And it would get rid of what was unnecessary. And Satan has to have permission to actually do it. So he asked permission. And Jesus says, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. Notice he doesn't say that your reputation may not fail, right? He, he doesn't say that your finances may not fail. That he, he says that your faith may not fail. And when you've turned back, strengthen the brothers. I mean, this, this is interesting. So the church is built on this. Competency in the church as leaders is built on this. But I have prayed for you. We all stumble in many ways, and Jesus prays for you. If you're going through a difficult time now, know that Jesus has prayed for you, that he prays for you right now. And the second thing is, strengthen your brothers. Strengthen your brothers. Isn't that ministry? So you know what I think Jesus is saying to Peter? Peter, you're going to enter the womb of failure. You're going to enter the womb of failure, but I've prayed for you. Peter, this will work out for your good. It'll make you more childlike and humble. This failure will make you more compassionate and empathetic. It'll make you more dependent on me. It'll make you wiser. Because leadership in my kingdom is not always for the best and the brightest, but for the childlike ones, the ones who cry out the most, the ones who are repenting, the ones who are experiencing my unfailing love and grace. Will you pray with me? Lord, thank you that you're the one who makes us competent and competency comes through broken failures that you raise up and say, now I'm going to use that. Now you're where you need to be, empathetic and humble, forgiven and deeply loved. Continue to lead us on in you, Jesus. And we'll say thank you. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about Community of Hope, go to www.cohchurch.com. God bless you today.